I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And in a moment we'll read the familiar passage of Scripture that we've come to know as the Christmas story. It's good to see each of you, and as always, good to be in the house of the Lord. Welcome any guests that we have with us this morning, as well as those joining by way of live stream. But in Luke chapter 2, as you follow along, this is God's Word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This was the first registration when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign unto you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. This is God's Word. And let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank You for another Sunday together in Your house, brothers and sisters in Christ, with Your Word open in our laps. Lord, it may be that for many of us we are largely unaware of the week that even those sitting beside us have had. And Lord, we could never know what the coming week includes. But for now, we sit at your feet. Would you speak to us what we need to hear? What we don't have, would you give it to us? What we don't know, would you teach it to us? And what we're not, would you make us? And that for your glory. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Well, this is among the most familiar of passages. And I always... uh, struggle whether or not to read it in the ESV that we use to study with each week because it just doesn't sound right, does it? And a couple of times the King James just popped out anyway because that's what's in here and you read over it. Sometimes it 
can become a stumbling block. But there are other passages that we'll read from this as well. But it's well known. It's what we call the Christmas story. And Luke frames the chapter against the backdrop of what will amount to a major contrast between what we read as we get into the details. The the backdrop is the power of Rome and the, the pomp of the Caesar. And the song that was sung, the first few verses seem as if they don't fit in church. Everybody knows that's the way a king comes, but that's not the way the Bibles tell us he came. So Luke knows this, and this is purposeful. He paints the picture of this powerful ruler who can say, I want everyone numbered, and they all have to go to the town they were born in in order to get it done. But then in the middle of a night, no one but shepherds, and they didn't know what was going on until they were told. God sends his son into this earth, and the angels give the birth announcement. The rule of Caesar Augustus, he's the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And we actually know quite a bit about his rule and about Rome and about the whole period of time. And that's a good thing to remind ourselves of because with the well-known story, we can let our mind drift and take us to a place where we just kind of consider the whole thing as fiction. We can almost know it too well. We have to remind ourselves on purpose. These were real people. Real time, real geographical region, real star, real angels, real manger. It all happened just as it is told. Luke sets the stage this way, of course, to draw the contrast. That's what the song, the choir sang, communicates. We've got our ways. We think we should expect this to happen. That's not at all the way it happened. And Luke, as he describes it, you've got the power of men contrasted with the humility of God. We would expect it to be backwards, but it's not at all. And then there's the news. And this is what we wrap our, our heads around this morning. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, who is the Lord. Verse 12, This will be a sign of unto you. So there's this good news of great joy, and this is the third week of Advent. That's our our topic. Our subject is joy. The first was hope, and then it was, do you remember? Love. Today is joy, which leaves one for next week, peace. And if we do this right, and it comes together as I hope it will in your mind, We're going to chart our way from Genesis to Revelation because the peace part is the one outstanding. We've yet to actually see peace on earth, much less goodwill toward men. That's to come. So we'll finish in Revelation. But today we consider the good news of great joy. That news involves a sign, though. Let's take care of that first. That's verse 12, and this will be a sign unto you. We talked a lot about signs when we studied John's gospel, didn't we? And John explained miracles, wonders, but he used the word sign. And he did that on purpose because the whole point of his book was to convince you that Jesus was who he said he was by use of these miraculous signs. 
that the signs pointed to something, like a sign on the road. The sign isn't, isn't what you pay attention to. It's the message on the sign which is pointing. Put your attention there, that He is God's Son. He really is who He says He was. This is different. Luke uses the sign for a different purpose. This isn't to cause you to believe. This is to give you instructions on how to recognize Jesus when you see Him. Look at it. It's very practical. Here's the sign to you. You will find a baby. There's lots of them, so you'll need to get the right one. This one will be wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. The first point is simple enough. And it does, or does it, narrow it down. If you've got a town full of babies, Bethlehem, surely there's babies around. It's not the only one. But of all the babies that are around that night, how many of them would be wrapped in swaddling clothes? Most of them. If not all of them. Because that's what you do, right? You don't wrap your babies in burlap. You wrap them in the softest thing you have, swaddling clothes. If, if we're trying to translate this into modern language, you'll find the babe dressed in a onesie. You laugh, but it's, it, it, you couldn't say anything more normal about a baby than that you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. You might as well say, uh, wearing a, a diaper. The onesie with the convenient snaps at the bottom. So you can get to business quick. That's what they did. Now the second one, though, is most unusual. Laying in a manger? Now, we have one definition for manger because we only use manger one time and one time of the year. If you, if you go to tractor supply and say, where's your mangers? They're going to look at you weird, though they have them. The definition of a manger is a feeding trough. They've got the plastic ones and they've got the galvanized steel ones. Fill them up with water or with feed or it's the big round thing with... The opening's just the size for the cow to get his neck through, but nothing else. You can't drag the straw all over the place. Hey. We use manger specifically, though, because that was the term they used for it. But if you think of it in that way, a manger was a feeding trough. That's the last thing I would want to use to lay one of our children in after it was born. But if that's all I had, that's what I would use. I think it's obvious that that's all they had or they would have used something different. But if you're looking for the baby Jesus, he's in swaddling clothes and in a manger, you've probably got the right child. So this is a sign to help them see and recognize what they're looking for. If they're knocking on doors, if you've got a baby, yes, wearing Swaddling clothes, yes. Lying in a manger. What's wrong with you? Who lays a baby in a manger? Next door. They keep their search. They're looking. Finally, when they find Jesus, they know they've got the right address. Now, there are studies, culturally speaking, that tell us that it wasn't unusual to have animals near one's house, especially, especially in the cooler months, that oftentimes... In these multi-layered houses, they might bring the animals in on the lower floor 
And for safety reasons, too. This was their food. These were their vehicles. The lower part of the house could serve as a modern equivalent of a garage. And since the days were accomplished while they were there that she should be delivered, Luke tells us, she was probably there sometime before birth set in. And likely they were with family because they go back to their hometown. All of the business about being lonely and out in the middle of nowhere, it just says that the inns were full. Doesn't mean that they were in a cave. Could have been. But a lot of times we like to really make those Christmas cards fancy. We even have the wise men there when that was two years later. People say, don't mess with my Christmas. I like it the way we've always had it. Don't let the Bible ruin our Christmas cards. But the manger was how they were to look. And that's how the angels told them. And that's where they found him. And they knew they had the right one. But I think also tucked away in in the sign was also another point to draw that same contrast between this is no palace. This is not the way it would happen in Rome. This is not at all as you might expect, but this is the way God has chosen this. They must have been struck with the difference between an idea of Rome, an idea of royalty, and a baby in swaddling clothes, but laying in a feeding trough. So yes, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord entered this world and spent His first nights in a feeding trough. The creator of the world chose to live in it that way. Let's keep moving. Verse 13. Suddenly, that's meant to to bring instant drama to the picture. The narrator's voice increases in volume, perhaps in emphasis. Suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying. And there's another problem with the way we like to think of Christmas. It doesn't say anything about singing. It says they were saying these things. It doesn't mean they didn't sing them. And those that lived during this time would probably say, well, you guys do the Psalms wrong. You read those when we sing them. Just to look at this and see what it says. I'm sure it was with song. How else do you do you add the emphasis necessary to say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased? That's a tough Greek sentence to translate. And different translations have it differently. You probably remember uh, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But look at what happens in 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, they disappeared. The shepherds said one to another, let us go over to Bethlehem. And see this thing that has happened. Now these were likely temple shepherds taking care of sacrifices. Because it's Passover. So they're going to go to Bethlehem. They're not in Bethlehem. And they're going to see this thing that has happened. Which the Lord has made known to us. So there's no doubt in the minds of the shepherds. That this is a message from God and they are going to go see what they've been told about. Verse 16, they went with haste, they didn't waste any time, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, exactly as they were told. When they saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Now, does this mean that they explained to Mary and Joseph what they'd heard? Or does this mean that they went and told others? I think yes. What do you do with good news? You tell people. What do you do with bad news? You tell people. <laughs> Unless it's bad news about you and then you don't tell anybody. But if it's good news, if you got a good deal, or if your team won, or if the girl to whom you've proposed says yes, then you tell people. And that's what's going on here. They're telling people the good news. So thus far, in the three weeks we've been studying Advent, the news of Jesus coming here on the third week, joyful news for all the reasons we've studied so far. In Genesis, we learned about sin, which broke fellowship with the God that made us. But we found hope there, even lost under the curse of sin, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. By verse 15 of chapter 3, we have a glimmer of hope that there's a workaround that God will redeem us. Even so, God loved us enough to have promised us a way back. And we learned last week, the God of love, how much does He love? Well, first of all, He loves a world, and how much He loves that world is to give His Son. We studied even John 3.16. We read it before we sang. This week, the hope of a Savior, promised by the love of God brings joy at his announcement. So up until now, the promise is he's coming. But at Luke 2, the angels tell us he's here. He has arrived. Emmanuel, God with us. He's living in your planet as one of you. Miraculously born of a virgin. This is quite a bit to take in. So... That's the Christmas story. And sometimes I find the easiest of passages, and I mean easiest of passages, the ones we know so well, they're the hardest ones to explain because we think we know them so well. Sometimes the hardest to explain verses are actually the easiest one. We haven't covered it before. Study, tell you what it means. But for the sake of, of our study through Advent, and working our way through the Bible to see the whole message, and there's still much to come next week. I thought we'd just take that theme of joy and, and look at it from another angle, perhaps one you haven't considered before, at least at Christmas. And sometimes it's worth our effort to think through things on purpose. And I know sometimes thinking's hard, it's work. School is work, right? And usually you don't like it because it's more work than you would ask for. And then you wind up during Christmas time at church on a Sunday and you're asked to think too in <laughs> church. Yes, we think our way through these things. I want you to consider this. And maybe by the time we've thought through it, maybe it'll touch our, our emotion as well. First thing we looked at is joyful news. Let me add another point to it. Joyful endurance. And for this, I want you to turn to Hebrews 12. All of this has to do with joy, but these are different places in Scripture that talk about joy. The angels just told us that they had news of great joy. We'll call that joyful news, but Hebrews 12 
Verses 1 and 2 speak of a joyful endurance. And this isn't joy that we're supposed to feel or be the recipient of. This is someone else's joy. This is Christ's joy. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. You may have this memorized. It's, it's a well-known passage. Therefore, and there's a lot that, that's packed into that therefore. It's basically saying because of what I've said so far, here's what we should do. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's those that have gone before us who are in heaven, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. Okay, that's, that's our endurance. The race that is set before us. Okay, but here's our example. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So he's the one that makes salvation possible, and he's the one who perfects our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God so there's your word joy and it's a joy that was set before Jesus which gave him what was necessary to endure the cross even despising the shame but in order to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God in victory the cross was his task, but there was a joy that motivated it. So if it's joyful news to hear that the Savior has come, we learn in this verse that what the Savior's here to do is actually His joy to accomplish, even though it involves His own death, which is a shameful, horrible death. So if we ask ourselves the question, what was this joy set before Jesus such that he would choose to endure a cross in its shame, I think we can rule out the cross itself. There's no joy in that. Isn't that one of the few prayer requests we hear from his lips, accompanied by great great drops of blood from his brow? Lord, if there's any other way, this cup can pass. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So it's, it, the joy is not his cross, but the cross is in between him. It's his joy that, that gets him through the cross. So it's got to be his work of redemption. We, we read this last week, God in Christ reconciling the world, world to himself. The world's lost in sin. God had, can't have anything to do with sin. There's a curse on sin. It brings death. That's its wage. But God is going to somehow provide a way for us to be forgiven of that sin we can't forgive ourselves for. He's going to do it through His Son. And that's going to bring that Son great joy. In fact, it's His joy to go through that process of bearing our own sin, paying for it to provide our forgiveness and redemption. That's exactly what it is. Now, the question I want to ask here, and this is where I want you to think. How are we supposed to understand any of that? You know, you, you've heard you've got to walk in somebody's shoes to know who they are. How do you comprehend the joy that is Christ, God's Son, whose Father said, go down there and do what they can't do for themselves, live a righteous life, and then I'm going to take the curse of sin and all my wrath against it, 
that I promised in the Garden of Eden, but has been stored up for generations and millions of people. And I'm going to focus and pour absolutely every drop of that wrath on your shoulders and crush you to death in their place. And then call that joy. We don't know anything about that. We can't be God. We can't enter into that and say, that would be joy. But that's what it says here. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is amazing. Here's another way to think through it. Maybe this will help. Maybe it will just confuse you. I don't know. It's always an attempt to get these goods on all different shelves so everybody can at least get something that might work for them. But do you suppose that when Christ was here on earth as a man in the form of those he created, but at the same time, God, do you think the time that he spent, let's just say, with his disciples reminded him at all of his time with Adam and Eve in the garden? Because it's the last time we see God walking with men. Now, he talked with men, but it, it was at a distance. It involved fire or swords. Stay away. I'm holy. You're not. But in this case, this God that they certainly can't get up to came down to where they are. And in the years that he spent with these guys, do you think it, it, it resembled at all what that was like? Even if through a veil because there's this sin that must be paid for or because of the fact that he knows that there's no stopping his paying for that sin can he somehow on credit relate to them in a way that reminded him of what it was like before sin entered the picture I don't know again we're just kind of guessing here because we're not God but we're trying to think is there some type of way we could understand maybe how he would find great joy in paying for our sins. I'm not sure. But if we remember why he created man in the first place, it was for fellowship. He wanted to be with them. Why else would he make us if he didn't want to be with us? Why would he choose to share his own existence with something other than himself if not to have communication? Or to love them, interact with them. It's hard for us to think like this on, on one level, just because we're talking about God and we're people. But on another level, what we know about Jesus when he was here was a long time ago in another culture that we don't know anything about. And we're miserably prone to trying to think about how that worked through the lens of the way things work here and now. But it didn't. And, and it, it's on us to try to put ourselves in their shoes. I live a few miles from here. But it takes me about 10 minutes in a car at speed to navigate the roads and the traffic in order to get here. But I don't talk to anyone between my house and this house. Because I'm in a metal vehicle made in Detroit by Ford and I might listen to someone else talking on the radio or singing but I don't talk to anybody we kind of live our lives at I don't know somewhere between 35 and 75 miles an hour 
We miss a lot while we're doing that. This man lived most of his life in one little village where everybody knew him. That was what was so tough when he started doing miracles because they all knew him. He lived his life at three miles an hour. That's, that's, that's how fast we walk. Uh, the distance between Peter's house, where he stayed a lot, we think, to the place where he would have breakfast with them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee is no further from here to uh, South Park, the walking trail. About 200 people probably lived in that village. And by the time he started doing miracles, these folks would have long written this man off if he was a kook or crazy. You, you wouldn't get by with that because everybody knew you. Here, nobody knows us. I could be the biggest loser that any of you ever know because I live far enough away from you, even though it's just over here, that we don't know each other that well. Where I could say one thing and live another, Jesus couldn't. And it's on that level that he knew these guys. He spent three years with 12 of them. We don't know this kind of stuff, but they did. So when we say, who for the joy endured a cross to save a group of people he created for a garden, believed a lie, were lost in sin, left heaven to come back down here to bring them to himself, to spend his life with them for three years to break the curse. This is joy that we know not of. But I think that helps us try to frame it. And if there's one thing that might get us closer than any of the rest of it, think as a parent about your children and raising them. Is it all a walk in the park? No. Does it involve difficulty, expense, um, carpet that ages quicker than if it was just you and your spouse? Dirty walls, places on that lovely granite that when you rub over it, you run right into jelly you didn't know was there. <laughs> Wrinkled up cars, trying to get them through, deciding who they'll spend the rest of their life with. It's got its pain and its misery. I remember one of the kindest men I ever knew. I worked for him. Best boss I ever had. And one time talked about, you'll never know pain and suffering till you have kids. <laughs> he loves his kids. It's true, isn't it? But would you use any other word than joy if you love them and they love you? Would you go through just about anything to make sure they had what they needed to be safe and to, be, to know that they're loved? Absolutely. So who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? There's one more, though. And I'm missing a page, but I found it. It was hiding from me. I forgot something. I'll add this. This was Jesus speaking in John 16. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. He used that word joy. Now, I've been there all four times when my kids were born. The first one was 
The first one's always, you've never done that before. Never seen this before. You feel like it's no man's land. But you're glad the doctor who's a man's in there too. But at that point, I thought, if any woman knew what was involved in the birthing process, there wouldn't be any babies. We'd, have, we'd been extinct a long time ago. But that, that's where I don't know what I don't know. I'm a man and I'm, I'm cut off to that. Women love it. Not all of them. Maybe not the moment. There's sorrow, right? When the hour comes, but it vanishes with the joy of having life in your hands. So think of the God that made that. Where, where did he get that from? Because he knows what it's like to make us all. To share life, to say, breathe. In my own image. And what he'd go through to repair the relationship if it was broken. One more step. And this is one of my favorite passages, and you probably know that as many times as us close services with it. But this is the 24th verse of Jude. So it's just a few pages to the right, right before you get to Revelation. And if we've looked at joyful news, and then we've marveled at joyful endurance that this man would undergo the cross because of some joy that propels him toward it, having set his face to Calvary. We're only getting started if we read Jude 24 because this is what he's after. This is that joy described in glorious terms. We'll call this joyful glory. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless, that's right, blameless, perfect, before the presence of His glory with great joy. It was uh, Paul David Tripp. Some of you have his New Morning Mercies. I believe that's the devotional this comes from. But he says, we are pitifully too comfortable too satisfied with our spiritual selves. We'll do our devotions, we'll read our Bibles, we'll go to church and we think, that's good. But not God. He's never going to be satisfied with anything less than perfection. And this business of Christianity and the pain that it involves is for the purpose of perfecting you. There's a reason why you tell your kids to clean up the room and to be nice and respectful. reason why you don't spend all the money you have on them so they'll learn how to earn their own and, and have their own responsibility because it'll be incumbent upon them to bring their own kids up. There's all that pain we talked about is because you want what's best. You want to see them grow. The Lord's done the same thing. And what we learn from this joyful glory here is that he's not above allowing us to hurt if it'll make us more like him. In fact, that's the purpose of it all. Kids don't understand that. The, the most strange words to a kid is, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. That's the dumbest thing 
that a kid ever heard a, an adult say, right? Kind of like the thing in the Christmas movie where they said adults like thinking that, you know, the shame for doing wrong is, is, is punishment enough. No, it's always better not to get caught, right? Talking about, you know, the phone pole, the tongue, Christmas story. You haven't watched it yet? It'll be on all day, Christmas. You can see it. That's what Ralphie explains. It's the truth. When we're immature, we don't get it. But when we're parents, we do, don't we? If we've got to allow them some pain in order for them to grow. And here what we're reading is that this joy that is motivating God to endure the cross is looking forward to a day where He presents His sinful creation in a blameless, faultless, perfect state in the presence of His Father. And there's His great joy. So earlier this week when I'm thinking, all right, I had to talk about hope the first week. I talked about love last week. Now it's joy. Why can't I just start in a verse and explain it and apply it? This topical stuff is hard on me. I'd rather just do verse by verse. What do I say about joy? Well, good news of great joy. That's joyful, yes. But then I'm thinking of these other verses and it dawns on me. I've been looking at the joy of Christmas totally backward my whole life. The joy isn't meant for you. Of course, you can feel the warmth of its rays. But it's not your joy. It's His joy. The joy of Christmas is that He loves you enough to die in your place to present you unbroken to His Father. And because of that joy, we have joy. It's kind of like living in your parents' home. Certain age, we keep keep, keep going back to this family explanation here, but there's a certain point where not here and not here, but about here, where they act like the house and everything that's in it is actually theirs, right? And they call the shots and they've got all the freedom. And then one day they'll realize that all that was their parents. And at a certain point, I, I feel like it dawns on us Jesus didn't die on a cross to make us comfortable or all our dreams come true or some Disney movie ending to this life. He came to work the sin out of us to make us presentable to His Father, to take us back where it all started. It's His joy. So which would you rather? Christmas be your joy? This is your holiday to make you happy enough to be civil with your family and open gifts and watch movies and fill your whole month full of a schedule that nobody can execute? Or would you rather know that Christmas really means that Christ's joy is actually you? That's why he came. That's why he died. Because he loves you enough to not leave you the way you are, but to make you like himself and then give you as a present to his daddy. That's Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the joy of good news. Thank you for the joy of your enduring the cross.
And thank you for a, a snapshot, a, a glimpse of the joy that will be yours when you present us to your Father. Not like we are now, but like we will be then. We'll be like you. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for coming. And Lord, would you take these things in our head and arrange them in, until they sink down into our heart and change us. Lord, would you wrap us up with, with a hug that we can feel. And Lord, may we give most of that to someone else. Help us to know there are folks that are hurting this season. Trying to figure out how to live in a world that's broken. Trying to make sense of why things happen the way they do. Lord, would you reveal yourself to them and use us if you see fit to share the love of Christ. Thank you for eternity. And thank you for today. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.